end is approaching. Has always been approaching. Approaching from the very beginning. Still, it seems closer today than ever before. We are on the edge of disaster, under its threat. This threat is real, and we delude ourselves by trying to deny or repress it. Can disaster be delayed? Will it be deferred? We cannot be sure. There is hope that lies not in certainty, but in uncertainty. Not in security, but in insecurity. Not in foundations, but in their faults. Not in cures, but in wounds. That wound might be our hope. Fragile hope. Nothing more. Impermanence the world's continual breathing. A time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. The spell we have placed ourselves under is one whereby the contingency of our condition has been understood as necessary. The prevalent realist adoption of contingency spells the necessity of the end. Do not be afraid when you hear of wars and rumors of war. These things must happen. But the end is still to come. Welcome to War Machine. This is our first episode. We're talking to Tommy Lynch. We're talking about apocalyptic political theology. It's going to be great. It's good to be back doing this. I've missed it. We've got some exciting things coming. We've got some great guests lined up, and I'm pretty psyched about it. Preston and I worked together on a previous project, and um, 
we've stayed in touch since then and thought it would be a good time to get something new going. Kind of carrying forward some of the uh, thematic and aesthetic sensibilities that we had going on previously, but kind of pushing in new directions as well. I'm not going to get too, in too deep into that now, but at some point we'll probably have to do an episode about what we're up to here. Check us out for now on Facebook at War Machine Podcast. Peace. Yeah, sorry if I look a little bit of a mess. I, I haven't gotten to the shower yet today. It's <laughs> <laughs> the end of my day. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, you look good, man. You got the collar on, looking um, very formal. Uh, I appreciate yeah, that. I teaching, yeah, I was teaching my uh, intro to faith and reason today. Mm. And in some ways it's difficult because it's, it's like the philosophy of religion that I don't like. Yeah. Uh, and then I have a, sec a second year module where like the first week I'm like, okay, so that, that first year module that you all took, I don't actually like that module, but there would be a revolt if we uh, tried to get rid of it. Right. So, um, but now like, here's the real stuff. <laughs> Can't get rid of Aquinas. What are you talking about? Well, yeah. Yeah, we're not a very the theology-y uh, <laughs> program. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, I think I may be the only person who teaches Aquinas. Okay, so no sacred cows. No, no sacred cows yeah. at all. Um, it's, your name's Thomas Lentz. You go by Tommy, mostly? Yeah, yeah, I go by Tommy. But somehow it just seems weird to have Tommy in the front of a book. Yeah, right. It doesn't sound very author, you know, like, it's like never yeah. erudite. I grew up going by PJ, you know, and I just like, it's not really an adult name for me. So I go by Preston, you know, the first name, so... But yeah, so people call you Tommy. Is that is that um, what you were called growing up? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I've experimented. I, I tried when I when I started my PhD. Actually, I'd had a um, uh, a sort of demoralizing experience where uh, some some people had moved to Nottingham where I was doing my MA, uh, and I sort of helped find a place for them to to stay and, and things like that. And so we were going over uh, to meet this family. And when we showed up, their daughter, who was like nine, was dismayed because she thought that like a, a child her age was coming over because <laughs> only children are named Tommy. Yeah. I was like, this is, this is not good. I'm like giving off the wrong vibe. So when I started my PhD, I decided I'm going to be Thomas. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's about three people left to call me Thomas. And they're all people I met uh, in the first you know, two months of my PhD. Um, but, uh, but yeah, apart from that one blip, I've always been Tommy. Okay. Well, what, what else should people know about you? Um, tell, us something, <laughs> tell us something about like maybe where you grew up. Yeah. Uh, so I am, uh, I grew up in a military family, so moved, moved around a lot. Uh, and then spent uh, sort of high school in Clarksville, Tennessee. Um, and then had like a brief period of evangelical, sort of hyper-evangelical Christianity. Mm. at Trevecca Nazarene University, uh, where I did my undergrad. Uh, it's in Nashville. Uh, I don't think most people have, have ever heard of it. Um, there is a very strange thing where there's a lot of people who work in kind of theory, philosophy of religion, political theology, who have a connection to the Nazarene world. It's like Anthony Paul Smith uh, spent some time at a Nazarene university. Uh, Adam Kotzko, I think mm. maybe graduated from a Nazarene university. Uh, so the Nazarenes, uh, they don't keep us, but they do something good that gets us uh, <laughs> uh, going in, in more in directions. Um, yeah, and then I moved to Japan and lived there for three years. 
and came to the UK. We became, my wife and I became British citizens just after Brexit. So we've got great timing. Yeah, well, I'm not picking up any kind of accent, which is disappointing. No Tennessee accent. I have cousins from Tennessee and their draw <laughs> is exceptional. Um, and I think, I feel like it would combine well with a, like a nice British accent. So you should probably get on that. <laughs> yeah, I think that, would, that would be very confusing. Um, very distinguished. I, I think distinguished is the word. <laughs> so kind of continuing in the sort of biographical direction somewhat. Um, I, so I read through the book. I finished it yesterday or the day before. Um, and well, it's, you know, it's deeply theological, obviously, but as far as I can tell, you're not doing explicitly theology. And I, there's something about living uh, in Japan and getting to travel around Asia that made me less invested in, sort of, I guess, theology in any sort of disciplinary sense and more in thinking about a kind of asecular philosophy, uh, which is the kind of thing I'm working on uh, more now, which is I, I don't really want to do the kind of post-secular thing, um, in part because I find those conversations uh, assume uh, some sort of validity of the secular often, uh, or there's a kind of narrative of secularity that I, I don't want to buy into. Uh, and Hussein Ali Agrama, who's an anthropologist, works on Egypt, um, has this notion of a secularity, and I really like that. And so, uh, yeah, I'm just in, like, what happens if you just don't really care whether or not something's religious or theological or philosophical? Uh, I just think like the world is clearly an incredibly and deeply messed up place. Uh, and I'm interested in whatever tools can help us think about that and less interested in the sort of provenance of those tools. Yeah, that's super interesting. There's a that thread of asecularity might be something to kind of unpack later on with maybe uh, towards the end of the conversation we can address like what you're working on now and how that frames the questions, you know, that you're kind of thinking about now. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you frame like your concept of the world and then specifically the world you, you want to uh, start talking about in relationship to messianism, apocalypticism um, that you that you begin the book with. I, I do think there is something important about contemplating the possibility of the end of the world. Uh, but the thing I hadn't done in my PhD research was really think about uh, sort of what that would that would actually mean. Uh, it was easier to just sort of talk about it in a much more abstract sense, but more talking about sort of how other people had discussed the world than getting into my own notion of the world. Uh, and so around the time I was um, reading a kind of weird mix of things. So like uh, just through things friends were talking about, I was reading uh, some Afro-pessimism, you know, Frank Wilderson, and then also uh, going back and revisiting a lot of Schmidt. I mean, people usually read the political theology book, maybe Theory of the Partisan, maybe Political Theology too. The stuff like the Nomos of the Earth almost never gets read. And so as I was sort of reading all these things, uh, I, I was also thinking about like how inescapable the world is and how it just seems like no matter what you do, uh, there is something which uh, has a kind of inertial pull that we can't escape and our best intentions are recaptured uh, by something. Uh, and, and the more I was, I was working through these dis different and often unconnected sources, uh, I was latching onto this notion of world. And I thought that that made, that made sense from an apocalyptic perspective. If we want to read apocalypticism more philosophically, uh, we're not talking about the end of the earth in any kind of 
uh, sort of, you know, Christ coming back and establishing a new earth kind of way. Uh, but yet there is something uh, that is ending uh, or could end that, and that ending would be attached to some sort of cataclysm or violence. Uh, and that, that would be the only way that world could end. So it would have to be something such uh, substance or such import uh, that it wouldn't be just a sort of reconfiguration of uh, ideology or, or, or something like that. Uh, and so it was kind of working through these different things. Um, I'm also really interested in materialism, um, but have grown more wary of, of trying to offer uh, in-depth accounts of materialist philosophy just because, uh, I, I don't know, at, at some point I realized that uh, it's easy to kind of draw, or at least for me, it's easy to draw on the kind of language of biology or physics and things like that. Uh, not easy, but you can sort of do that. And I'm never really sure if I'm doing it metaphorically or if I'm appealing to some like actual science. Uh, and so I became reluctant to try to think about the world and talk more about the way that we actually organize our physical reality. Uh, and then that way that that just shapes our experience of of everything. So Hegel often comes up in discussions of religion as, as a kind of bad guy. I, I guess because he's uh, part of German idealism, there's, there's this notion that like he has some sort of inadequate concept of religion. And I've always, always found this really strange. Um, well, I didn't always find it really strange. I, I found it strange when I eventually went and read Hegel on religion, uh, that people were often dismissive of his account of religion. And what I found was that uh, there are aspects of Hegel that really anticipate key ideas uh, in the study of religion now, kind of around lived religion, uh, material religion, things like that. Uh, and so in, for, for Hegel, religion is the key step in the progression towards absolute truth, uh, which is sort of uh, where, where philosophy eventually gets us. Um, but you can't get there without religion. And in the, the standard account of Hegel's philosophy, that, that's how it goes, right? You, you have religion, and then you get to absolute truth. This is the way that the phenomenology of spirit is structured uh, in the table of contents. In some of Hegel's other writings, and in particular, a, a book review, uh, or not a book review, sorry, and uh, a response he wrote uh, to someone's review of his own book, uh, that Hegel indicates that after you get to uh, absolute truth, uh, it's not that religion goes away. You still need that sort of representational form uh, because basically religion and philosophy are thinking the same concepts. They're just thinking of it in, in different ways. Uh, and so religion provides access to the truth of philosophy, uh, but in a sense we say in a more embodied and practiced way. Uh, now, I think there's something problematic in that because uh, there's one way of reading what Hegel's saying is philosophy is for the smart people, and then re uh, religion provides access to a sort of lesser version of philosophical truth for you know all those all the dummies that aren't capable of doing uh, philosophy. And there's probably yeah. some truth in that that reading of Hegel. It's, um, it's just Platonism for the masses, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas I would be more interested in thinking of it as there's something which truth in its most conceptual form while that's like useful for thinking the truth, doesn't let us use truth in a way. And so in order for the truth of philosophy to work uh, beyond just the philosophical realm, it needs representational forms. 
Uh, and this is where in some Hegel scholarship now, people are arguing that Hegel's philosophy of religion and the way he treats representation uh, doesn't have to be just limited to, to Christianity or even just to things that we normally think of as religion. But uh, this is a way of thinking about uh, rituals and habits and practices uh, as ways of accessing and embodying truth that are definitely messier than philosophy, but that allow us to do things with truth that philosophy doesn't allow us to do. Yeah, and necessarily representational. Yeah, and, and uh, what I should say too, I mean, and the interpretations of uh, Hegel that I find most interesting, uh, the absolute truth that philosophy is taking us to isn't truth uh, in the sense that we might think of it in a kind of platonic form, right. um, but rather uh, the truth is the kind of movement of thought itself. Mm -hmm. And so we're, uh, we're not arriving at like the perfect clear picture of uh, of reality or something like that, but uh, uh, an understanding of consciousness and consciousness's role within the world uh, and the process and movement of thought. Uh, so the truth that we are now embodying and representing uh, through uh, things that are religions or sort of quasi-religions or identities that we might engage with in a pseudo-religious way, mm -hmm. the truth of those things isn't, yeah, truth in the Platonic sense, but uh, apprehending something about sort of the way we work as manifestations of nature and subjectivity and all that good stuff. Yeah. Have you read, um, uh, I think it's McGee's uh, Hermetic Hegel, Hegel book? Yes. I mean, it was sort of early on. Uh, I, I will not be able to say anything remotely intelligent about it, but. Okay. Uh, uh, do, do you have any interest in, um, I don't know, a culture or hermeticism or what, you know, esotericism broadly speaking? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, kind of interested in, in Gnosticism uh, in the earlier parts of my PhD research. Um, there's also the, there's a book by Cyril Reagan, uh, The Heterodox Hegel. And there's interesting work being done on, done on Gnosticism. Laura Well, Francois Laura Well does some stuff with Gnosticism. And that all sounds very interesting. Um, I'm trying to be more disciplined uh, <laughs> because I find everything interesting. Uh, and I would eventually like to write a second book uh, or like publish a journal article or two. And, and I find that if I, uh, I think that's not where I'm going in the immediate future. But, um, but yeah. yeah. No, that's fair. Um, in recent years, I've taken a kind of a left turn or an unexpected turn into uh, some of that stuff. And one of the practices that, uh, that I've adopted is, um, you know, working with the tarot. Hmm. And um, as I was reading this book, the uh, the image of the tower. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It kept coming to mind, and I think it was probably it probably was on the day of 9/11. And so I, I went to my deck and pulled it out, and then I started using it as a bookmark <laughs> um, as I was reading through it. Um, the tower is like you know it's one of the major arcana of of the tarot. It represents destruction, upheaval, chaos, revelation. Has these different sort of valences uh, attached to it. It sort of occurred to me that the that apocalyptic thinking is not just simply like thinking about the end. It's not just about the falling tower itself, right? It's not just about annihilation, although that's certainly um, you know a part of it, right? But it's uh, equally about contemplating the the foundations of the tower, um, the way that they're shot through with fissures and contradictions, which I think kind of maybe connects back to this idea of world. Could you say more about the the world and the foundation that you sort of set forth 
Yeah, so um, in, in the first chapter, I talk about a set of antagonisms uh, and I use Frank Wilderson's uh, notion of antagonism as a way of, sort of explaining what I'm trying to get at, which uh, is an antagonism is a, an opposition in which there's no possible resolution between the two sides. Uh, and, I, and I like what you're saying there about the tower. I mean, in some ways that mirrored my own way of thinking or my own process of, of coming to this notion of the world, which is that you sort of look around and you think, this all seems really bad and like it can't be sustained. But then you start to ask yourself, well, what would it look like for this to end? And in order to have an account of the end, you need to know what's ending. And so uh, in thinking about what it is that needs to end, uh, I came uh, sort of playing off some ideas in Schmidt, the set of four antagonisms, which are uh, nature, gender, race, and capital. Uh, and the argument I make is that these, these four antagonisms are so uh, powerful because they're, they're deeply related. Uh, and so that the ways that we think about nature informs the ways we think about race, all that is run through with uh, capital, and the same thing can be said of gender. So uh, there are gendered forms of racialization, uh, gender becomes racialized, uh, notions of gender are informed by our understanding of, of nature, uh, capital exploits nature and gender uh, in somewhat similar ways. And so looking at the, the historical and conceptual overlaps and connections between these four antagonisms makes you realize that in a completely contingent way, that over the course of human history, and particularly European history, that we have seen the emergence of a set of antagonisms which now structure our experience of the world. And while we might find pockets uh, of, of uh, ways of experiencing the world that allow us some respite from those antagonisms, um, they can only ever be temporary. So at one point I used the example of uh, you know, groups of people who are completely disconnected from the world uh, around them, uh, whether that be you know, tri tribes in the Amazon or people who are living uh, where there's no contact with the outside world. Uh, the air they breathe is still polluted. You know, the ocean that surrounds that island, that still bears the trace uh, of, of capital. Uh, and that capital operates through uh, the exploitation of racialized communities and gendered people. Uh, and so uh, you, you always come back to the fact that there, there is on this earth no escaping a world which is constituted by these four antagonisms. There's nothing sort of ontologically necessary about our world as a world, but within that world, things which we could narrate as sort of historical contingencies have become necessary to the, the shape of the world. Uh, and so uh, those antagonisms, um, you know, if you wanted to take uh, the emergence of capitalism uh, or the development of the modern concept of race, uh, like we, when you look back historically, you know, there's a, a, a million things that are happening uh, that lead to the development of those ideas, uh, and not only those ideas, but those organizations of the world. And uh, they're not undertaken by actors who are, are trying to accomplish the ends that we have come to experience uh, as the world. And yet they have solidified over time to make a world which is 
uh, an escapable. So it's on the one hand, we don't want to just say that everything is contingent because people often conflate contingency uh, and arbitrariness. So it's not that the world we live in is arbitrarily organized um, and the events which have led to it being the world that it is are contingent, but that world is now necessary because we, you can't undo history. You know, we, we can't just be like, oh, now we're not going to need capitalists and suddenly we won't have uh, global warming. By the way, we'll uh, just eliminate gender as a kind of yeah. organized principle. You can't clean the slate. You can only break it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, I have a, a sort of side interest, which maybe one day I'll do something with um, in, in science fiction. Um, I really love the, uh, the novel uh, Woman on the Edge of Time. Uh, which describes a utopian society in which there is uh, no gender and no race. Uh, and there's a much different relationship to the more than human world. In the, in the novel, like, it's very clear that something horrible has happened, uh, but there, there's no description of what that, what that was. But it's that, that sense that, I mean, sure, there is another way of, of living. And it would be possible for human beings to have uh, a different form of life, but we're probably never going to be able to escape fully the historical legacies of the world, uh, which has been contingently uh, developed, but now is, is necessary. Um, I mean, and, and I think that's where that material, materialist aspect is so important. I mean, uh, the world very materially has been organized along lines of those antagonisms. I mean, it's just like, how, how do you undo a world that was forged by, you know, empire, the emergence of industrial capitalism, you know, the whole idea of the Anthropocene is that we're, we're not in like a new ideological era, we're in a new geological era. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about processes which have taken hundreds and hundreds of years to develop, uh, if not longer, uh, and escaping that is uh, just an impossible thing to envision, which is how I wind up with this notion of apocalypticism. I can't imagine what the end will look like uh, and there's that, that ethical quandary too. The end of the world, if it does happen um, in a way that many human beings will experience it, I mean, maybe we'll all just sort of bake in the heat death of the sun or uh, slowly drown because of uh, global warming or something. Uh, but if it is uh, something more catastrophic, uh, it will entail the suffering and death of, of millions of people, many of whom will be the most vulnerable so it's like you, you want the end of the world because the world is bad. You can't also really want the end of the world uh, because of the suffering would entail. And so you're left in this kind of liminal state where on the one hand, you know it must end, but waiting the end, which you find you can't ethically truly desire because of what it would mean for so many people. Yeah, somewhere in there, you said that um, you can't imagine the end of the world, but then you started describing what it might look like. <laughs> so it's a weird idea it's sort of a limit it's almost a limit concept hmm. um i do think there are multiple worlds that you're you're looking at tommy is like there's one that kind of culminates in this the world we live in now capital race gender um right but there's also i think you're saying like the breaking of the tablet world where you have this kind of apocalyptic rupture from within that also that also seems to be like equally horrific in a way um so I was just kind of noting that I think like there might be at least two worlds that we're imagining that could be horrific. Yeah, I don't know if I would think of them as, as separate worlds. Um, 
because I guess the way that the world would end would still be shaped by the, by the antagonisms which are constitutive of the world. And one of the things that I have been thinking about since finishing the book and that people sort of push me on um, is like, you know, do we need a world? Like is, uh, I think I would stand by my argument that the world uh, is a way of organizing um, sort of material reality uh, and that that is the way that uh, our material reality is organized. Um, but whether or not we need a world or if there's sort of multiple worlds or if we could just get rid of uh, worlds altogether, all of that, yeah, I, I'm less certain of. Mm. I think I'm, I'm too fixated on the fact that we have a world and I sort of wish it would and also fear it's ending. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was thinking of um, when you're talking just before about Catherine Keller's book on political theology and her sort of um, apophatic possibility that perhaps rests at the threshold of apocalyptic thinking, hmm. right? It names a sort of, yeah, this is about probably the po most positive we can get with apocalypticism, right? But it's like a, a zone of fertility or, or something like that, right? Hmm. Like, because we just don't know because uh, it is, as I'm suggesting, a sort of limit concept, perhaps. But you write that apocalypticism does not await the transcendent, but engages in the act of transcending, um, which seems to kind of indicate the possibility of a an apocalyptic practice um, mm -hmm. that is, I don't know, participatory. I mean, it gets to this question of that invariably comes up in these these kinds of discussions. You know, what are we supposed to do? You know, what, what are, you know, what are the alternatives? Um, and then you invariably, you get your discussions of, um, as you were sort of alluding to of exit or accelerationism or whatever, but I don't know. What do you think? Like, how is one to live at the end of the world? Um, yeah, I, I think one, uh, one kind of downside to this sort of academic text is, I mean, it's clearly presented as like an argument with different philosophical voices and things like that. And it certainly is that, but it's also like in some ways, I'm just trying to work out how I should think and feel uh, and live. And so in that sense, it's like a really personal, uh, really personal thing. Uh, and, and for me, I think on the one hand, I increasingly uh, don't, want to be judgy about how people sort of live with an awareness of the end of the world. So like having arrived at something like an apocalyptic place, um, I think people find different ways of sort of manage, managing that in their own lives. Uh, uh, and for some people, it's drugs. Uh, for other people, it's um, people find different ways of sort of coping uh, with like the horrors of, of reality. I'm also like aware of the fact you can't, it's necessary to realize that the world is bad and should end. Um, but that focusing on that exclusively, exclusively removes your ability to resist the world uh, as much as you are able to. And so I think uh, the task is really to figure out for uh, the position you occupy within that world, how can you identify the way that the world structures your life. So there's a kind of analytic dimension of that. Uh, and then finding ways of resisting that as much as possible while being fully aware uh, that the world is much stronger uh, than us, that it uh, has incredible endurance, and that will inevitably recapture even our, 
our best efforts. Um, it's less about acting in a way that will necessarily bring about the end of the world because I think that is in, in its own way too optimistic. Um, but like having, I guess having identified the specific violences of the world in which we live, finding those ways of resisting that violence and being, uh, reducing your complicity in that violence, um, while always being aware of the fact that this is an endless task and is never going to go away. Yeah. This is something that, that struck me over the last month or so about, or the end of the world, right? So this kind of apocalyptic notion that we're facing the end of the world. And so like somebody made a comment, there have been tons of communities, specifically like Native American or indigenous communities that have already faced the apocalypse. The, like their world has already ended. I'm wondering if like, how, like drawing on resources of communities, right? Who, whose world has already ended and how to be resilient or like try to find the differing modes of, mm. of kind of like coping with that or building mm. a, a, a sense of life uh, in a world that is no longer right, like or after a world that has been taken away. I mean, even thinking about like people from Iraq or Syria, right? And, you know, mm. like refugees who have left the Middle East because of wars and destruction and violence. Like their world is over. Like that 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 world is gone. And in a sense, you're you're kind of left with carrying the remains, right? As you as you kind of walk in a new into a new world. That, like maybe in some sense, is like the source of where that violence came from in some ways, but it's still a new world to you. I mean, in a lot of ways, you're learning new materialities, like hmm. new, new, new languages, right? Like new ways to dress, to interact with people. And then you start, you know, maybe you start having children and they start having children. And so you, so that new world becomes more internalized as a, as a norm, right? And so like, I mean, that's a different complexity, but I'm just wondering if like maybe like that could be a sense of a, a source of how to think of life after the apocalypse, because I, I know I do. I get blind. I get I get blinded by the fact that the apocalypse was coming. But that in sense shows like how I'm subjectively constituted by the world that, that I live in, in a way that other people are not, right? Because other people have already lost that world. So I don't know. I don't know if that's a question or not. I just I just I just I think it's interesting to kind of reframe that because I was even thinking of like um, where this kind of this literature of apocalyptic literature comes from, and you know, in that kind of four or five hundred mm-hmm. year period around the turn of. Uh, the the common era like the before to the after common era even that's a reframing of a world right like that doesn't happen until you have very powerful christians reframing the calendar right um in this part of the world so but this literature comes out of that milieu where you have worlds being destroyed you have you know your kingdom as ancient israelites like being destroyed right or being and you become an occupied people and you lose a sense of the world and so you start talking about this messianic hope of a new world a better world coming out of it and then you have like kind of that seedbed growing which Christianity eventually grows out of, right? You have these messiahs in the first century, right? I guess maybe the question is like, how do we build hope? Or it's even maybe the Afro-pessimist's notion is like maybe hopelessness in a sense of, in a way is is how we structure thinking about a new world. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that at all? Yes, yes. I have a few thoughts. So one of, uh, one of them would be, I tend to, when people talk about hope, my question always, well, hope, in in what and sort of in what direction usually i find that it's um a hope in the world that you're hoping that the world to provide the resources for correcting the problems that are in fact the world and i think people like dan barber are really good on this this point that the possibilities that we find ourselves presented with will always be possibilities of the world 
I mean, in one sense, the antagonisms that form the world are maybe the uh, fissures upon which it will break apart, uh, but the world does not provide sort of possibility of its, of its own undoing. Uh, it'll just endure. Mm. And so I'm always like a little bit funny about hope because I think on the one hand, uh, there are forms of hope and hopefulness uh, that are ways of resisting the world but that isn't usually the way we're talking about hope. And I find this in climate change as well. Like when people talk about being hopeful, it's a real emphasis on our, our sort of duty to be hopeful. Mm-hmm. And then on and kind of using uh, these other resources, I mean, I think I, I'm certainly doing that to an extent, uh, though less about sort of resources for maintaining hope, uh, but more resources of people or kind of communities of people who have actively practiced uh, disinvesting from the world. And I guess that's, that's one phrase that I haven't really uh, mentioned yet, but is like pretty kind of key to the argument I want to make. Uh, my sort of vision of ap- apocalyptic living is a process of disinvesting from the world. Um, and uh, the accounts that I've been most influenced by are from queer theory uh, and black studies. But then I also feel very complicated about that. Um, I mean, I uh, am a straight white dude. It's like undeniable that when I read literature, uh, which uh, has been written by people who have a different position within the world, uh, not positions of their own choosing, uh, I find something valuable in their experience. Um, But I also don't want to engage with that literature in a way which just sort of appropriates um, and decontextualizes that work. And it's one thing that I've, I found very difficult kind of going forward and, and thinking about how to continue engaging with some of that, that material. Yeah, how do you do that responsibly? I mean, what is an ethical mode of engagement with uh, the, those ideas and those thoughts and those, those people? And I, and I don't have a very good uh, answer, uh, answer to that. And then I think the, the last thing I would say about that is that, I mean, for me, the kind of um, the most important point is that whatever our kind of hope or whatever sort of orientation we take towards the future, uh, the thing that I am sort of most opposed to is any kind of narrative of redemption. So it's, I think it's fine to hope that uh, we will uh, find a way of escaping the world, uh, that we will come up with new forms of resistance, that we will find communities of resistance. I think all of those things uh, are, are good things to consider. Um, But when we start to think about what are the events or actions that we could take that would redeem the world that we uh, find ourselves living in, uh, I just don't see there is no redemption for the world. Um, And yeah, so I I think it's one thing to talk about hope, but when that hope becomes part of a narrative of redemption where we can say, oh yes, we've done this, we sort of overcome the world. I just don't see any real possibilities in that. So it's, it's better to think about how we can form, I guess, something like communities of resistance, uh, but resistance that isn't aimed at a kind of uh, arriving at the good, because I don't see the good as a real possibility, but uh, of identifying ways of living that aren't aiming at any kind of redemption, but are just, like we can't imagine living any other way because this is, this is the way we have decided that we can experience the world in as, uh, in as little a complicit way. That's not, that, that doesn't work as little a complicit. <laughs> um, 
you know, harming others as little as possible, uh, taking ownership of our own role in the violence of the world. Uh, and then resting assured that this, I mean, this can't last forever. Um, I mean, I, I don't imagine the world in the sense that I use it will end anytime soon. Uh, but we don't have to like that and we don't have to invest in the things that the world tells us we should hope and care for. Um, but that takes a lot of work. Um, and so we should find people that help us do that work uh, and then go from there. And, and trying to think about like how we, like what are the sort of intellectual practices? Um, I mean, I'm also very conscious of the fact that uh, like I'm not a political activist. Uh, I wouldn't hold myself up as any kind of example of like apocalyptic living. Uh, you know, I, 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 I try, but you know, I'm not, I'm not succeeding in any way. Um, but there is something about sort of intellectual practices of vulnerability. Um, and I think that sort of works at the level of disciplines as well as our sort of own intellectual identities. Um, finding ways of not, not just, uh, sort of learning from or taking from traditions and perspectives, which aren't our own, um, but like in a real and deep sense, finding ways of making ourselves vulnerable uh, to the critiques that come from that, that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and that's not a, a perfect response, but um, I mean, at least that's, that's kind of where I'm at now. Like what, what does it mean to have a kind of intellectual humility that isn't just the sort of posturing that comes from, you know, uh, saying, well, I'm a straight white dude, uh, but is like a, a genuine, uh, allowing yourself to be disrupted by the experiences of the world that other people have had, uh, which more are more acutely tuned to the violences of the world uh, than my own. Uh, while, while recognizing that that is its own kind of uh, luxury um, to think of these as kind of intellectual debates. Uh, but at least for the moment, that's, that's where, where I find myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I would agree with you in that there's there's certainly value in sort of experimenting and thinking about sort of intellectual space that can help help us through in different ways through this time. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back to like what constitutes the the world, those bifurcations that you that you mentioned earlier on of nature, capital, race, and gender, and that whether in a sort of solution based approach to these kinds of questions of what to do or an effective one, a spiritual one, however you want to kind of um, parse that out. Oftentimes that our, our thinking doesn't, can't get behind those bifurcations. It's like insufficiently, um, insufficiently metaphysical. So I, I do think there's an importance in thinking about uh, these things. I mean, I know this isn't metaphysics isn't exactly what you're kind of focusing on the book, but it seems to me that it's one possible starting point because it is further upstream than the kind of liberalism um, which constitutes the world. I don't know mm. what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is um, you know, one of the places that the kind of the boundaries between philosophy and theory become blurred. Uh, and in some ways, I wonder if, like having done lots of my own intellectual development in departments of theology and religion, uh, has sort of saved me from that the kind of lines between philosophy and theory uh, where like I guess uh, at least if you're to believe like people arguing with one another on social media that philosophy is more focused on clarity and theory more on like identifying like what we can 
uh, can't say within a particular intellectual framework. So like trying to say the unsayable, mm -hmm. which is inevitably a much more uh, recursive uh, and o opaque task than, than striving for, for, for clarity. Um, and I sort of find myself somewhere at, at the edge, you know, it's like on the one hand, uh, you kind of want that clarity for defining uh, the world uh, and for arriving at some like ontological conclusions about the, the structure of our reality or our lived reality. Um, but in order to then begin to ask ourselves, like, what are the, what are the forms of experiences or the, the concepts uh, that we are deprived of by, by that world? Right. And again, I don't think we can escape the world uh, or, or get behind uh, to, to some other reality, uh, but at least there is something in identifying uh, what is the impossibilities of the world. Uh, and those impossibilities are, I guess, in, in a way, their own kind of hopeful, mm -hmm. uh, a source of hope or something like that. Because while it is negative, and maybe this is uh, kind of apophatic, I've, I've never really thought of it this way until right now. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're sort of identifying um, what we're being denied. Uh, and while we can't see of any way of achieving what we're being denied, uh, at least we can, we can name that deprivation. Uh, and that's its own kind of hopefulness or something, maybe? Yeah. No, I like that. I, I, I guess going back to like the, um, Preston, you were saying something about sort of the possible um, helpfulness of in, of indigenous um, experience, indigenous thought. I'm just, I don't know. I, I, this is sort of a recent interest of mine. I, I think there's a lot of, I hate to say this word because it sounds so like colonial, but untapped resources there. Um, speaking from the world. I'm speaking from the world, right? And this, well, this is my point, right? So, so the, well, one of my points is like, you can be, we can sort of wring our hands about sort of appropriating different forms of thought and stuff like that. And that's, that's absolutely right to do. But like, at the end of the day, we're all, we're all colonized subjects, you know what I mean? So I think we, we, we learn in school to think a certain way so that when we think of solutions to our problems, we just, you know, unwittingly reproduce the forms of thought that got us there in the first place. I don't know. Is it something you worry about? Like the way that your very epistemological framework has been colonized? Yeah. I mean, like on the one hand, yeah, I, I, like I, I agree with what you're saying. Like we're, uh, like we all start thinking from positions which we haven't chosen, uh, which I wouldn't say necessarily like makes those positions equal uh, uh, in terms of their view of the world. Uh, I mean, some of the other work I do is in sort of social epistemology and epistemic injustice, which uh, argues that, I mean, there are privileged perspectives on the world uh, and privileged perspectives in the world don't coincide with other forms of privilege normally. Uh, so it's the people who have a very vested interest in understanding the, the, all the varieties of violence that constitute our world who understand those forms of violence the best because for them it's not an intellectual exercise. Um, it's, it's part of, of, of life. And so I think it's like certainly important to learn from that, but I guess the question is then how we go about doing that. Um, and one of the things that I'm more and more conscious of is the importance of sort of not using ideas that emerge from communities in which you have no, no real relationship to. So, you know, when uh, it's like, I think using indigenous ideas uh, uh, and engaging with indigenous philosophies and cosmologies, you know, people like Eduardo Viveras de Castro do like really interesting things with, uh, with indigenous thought. Uh, but I think if you're sort of, 
doing things with indigenous thought without sort of engaging with indigenous people, that's where it becomes more, more problematic. Uh, if a set, cause yeah, it's effectively divorcing those ideas from the people and context from which they emerge uh, and the people who have done the important work of, of developing those ideas. And so I try to be kind of uh, aware of when I'm encountering something uh, as like an idea or a concept, because I, I think that sort of depersonalizes things. What I'm engaging with is uh, uh, usually the things that I find most interesting, the results of someone's own lived experience of the world. And if I don't have the time and energy and means of engaging with those people, then I should probably leave their ideas to them to continue developing them because I would be afraid that my mode of engaging with them might not do them justice. Uh, and and I, how do you know uh, if you're not involved in conversations with with those people? Yeah, and so I mean, I, I think, again, I'm still trying to work this out for myself, uh, but that's sort of the position that I've, uh, I've arrived at. I don't think it's wise for us to go to communities we don't have any involvement or investment in and, and you know, take their ideas. Um, like, for instance, I, I'm really starting to get into, like, the Jewish mysticism, but I can't go and say, like, I have to give uh, uh, ownership and props and credence and, you know, and valorize where these ideas came from and say they're not mine, but I find them helpful and maybe addressing questions I have about metaphysics or ontology while also recognizing that I didn't have anything to do with this, right? So I, I don't want to like use a resource um, without like, again, giving proper attribution and recognizing this is not a community that I have any like deep sustained involvement in. Um, and I don't want to use it like that way. So I, again, like I'm very much, very much aware and growing aware of like how appropriation happens and that's part of the world we live in right and that was the that was a the, the thread i think that the world we live in also has deep theological roots um and so that was my question for you tommy was like you're using theology and i and i think a helpful way to reframe questions of the world we live in but i also think that like this world that you that you frame is is a theological world or built on a theological world as well and i'm wondering so it's kind of a juxtaposition of like we live in a theological world, but we're also using the, like a particular strand of theology to kind of disinvest from that world. And I think that's kind of a really interesting tension. And I'm wondering if you've done any thinking about like the theological underpinnings to the, the liberalism or the theology of liberalism, right? That we're kind of, we're living in. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, over the summer, I've been doing lots of reading kind of around uh, transformations that happened in 1492, looking at the work of people like Sylvia Winter, De Silva, and other people kind of within that uh, theories of race, and trying to understand, um, I mean, there's just now a growing body of literature on the theological origins of race. And then, I mean, and that fits very well with like the theological origins of like attitudes towards uh, nature. Some of which I think is is older and, and not always like very uh, not very helpful. I, I work with um, a biblical scholar named Hannah Strumman, who's written a book on biblical animality, uh, and reading that was really instructive because it made me aware of the fact that I might buy into like easy critiques of of, of Christianity. And I think one of the the tricky things now is like having having been persuaded by lots of different arguments in lots of different fields that uh, the world is uh, structured by Christian theology. 
Um, so not that everyone in the world is somehow Christian, but that uh, those ma uh, material antagonisms which shape our world are all deeply invested in some form of Christianity. Uh, now the thing I'm finding challenging is trying to figure out, well, how do you make that critique well? Because uh, it's easy to make that in a kind of quick, quick sense. But Christianity is not the only thing that like bears culpability for the world. Uh, and figuring out how, yeah, how to make that critique well uh is i think tricky but a worthwhile task yeah and christianity is not monolithic yeah. either so yeah i've definitely fallen prey to those kinds of easy criticisms because they're well because they're easy and then they, and there is a, a degree of truth in them that that can be helpful for think, thinking through some of these sort of mm -hmm. trans uh, historical and you know theological transitions especially into secularity and the whole death of god and all that sort of stuff um but I, we can't fin we can't finish without talking about the um, the figure you offer uh, riffing on Kierkegaard. Yeah, with the night of apocalyptic pessimism. Yeah. This was I thought that was great. A great image. I'm, I'm glad you liked it. Uh, uh, it's fair to say that when I presented earlier versions of it, the the response was mixed. <laughs> oh, is that, is that right? Why is that? Uh, I think some people thought it was like a little much. Um, Dude, that was the that was my favorite part. <laughs> At that point, I'd also spent a lot of time working on it. And I was like, there's no way I'm changing anything. I don't have to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I thought it was really great to help at least um, whether, you know, people like it or not. I thought it was a great way to sort of crystallize the project into a representation. So can you say a little bit more uh, about that idea? The night of apocalyptic pessimism? Yeah. So, um, yeah, playing off this, uh, the, the figures, uh, from, from Kierkegaard, you, you know, you have the knight of infinite resignation who's sort of moping about, um, and I think that that is a way of, uh, inhabit inhabiting an apocalyptic mindset, um, or dealing with a kind of realization of the violence of the world. Uh, and I, I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with it. Again, like I'm, I'm not really into being judgy about, uh, how people deal with, horrible things but I, want, I wanted to sort of like get at that aspect of what Kierkegaard is talking about kind of a, an awareness of impossibility without then going the kind of hopeful route where you sort of hope despite that impossibility uh, yes and so I arrive at this this night of uh, apocalyptic pessimism and kind of playing with some passages that um, uh, in which Kierkegaard is describing his, uh, his figures uh, try to argue that what I think is distinctive about the night of apocalyptic pessimism is that it's, I mean, when we talk about uh, disinvesting from the world, for example, um, when Jakob Taubes um, uh, offers that, that line, he's, he's talking about spiritual disinvestment because we can manage a kind of spiritual disinvestment, but uh, we can't uh, materially disinvest the world, uh, disinvest from the world, or at least most of us can't. I mean, I occasionally have fantasies about living someplace in the woods with, you know, no electricity and some sort of self-sustaining community or whatever. Uh, but, but that's not uh, a, a practical desire for, for most people. And so we have to work on that kind of spiritual disinvestment uh, while being unable to avoid the fact that we're materially invested in the world and that our lives are structured by that, that world. Uh, and it's that sort of trying to, to navigate the fact that um, we, you know, we should probably vote in the next election uh, if you're a US citizen, uh, because it will make lot people's lives uh, worse if we don't. But it's also not going to be a solution. Uh, so what we're, what we're after is not a kind of making the world uh, better 
because the world isn't a good thing. Uh, what we're doing is finding ways of navigating the different violences uh, which constitute the world uh, and it's for doing our best in light of that. So I'll go to my union meetings, I'll vote in elections, but I don't think that that's going to, to sort of change the world in any sort of deep and substantial way. But uh, I would rather minimize the violence that I and other people experience as much as, as possible while also identifying ways of spiritually disinvesting from the world. And I've had some sort of back and forth with people about this because some you'll find it just sort of like sort of apathetic or kind of apolitical or uh, kind of lazy, laziness. Um, not, you know, why not be more engaged in activism? Why not protest? Uh, and I'm not against that more kind of activist approach. I just think there are ways of being activists, uh, activists which uh, fall into the trap of being invested in the world. Right. Uh, or being captured by the hope of the world. So it's less, less about exactly what you're doing, but the kind of horizon against which you're acting. If it's about redemption. It's about uh, the world finally being made right. I think we're being co-opted by the world and we should actively resist that, whatever form that resistance might take. Nice. President, you got anything else? No, I think we should end on the hopeless note. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do appreciate though the... I do appreciate that character and that, and that kind of disinvestment spiritually. I mean, I think one of the things that I've sort of realized, it's like weird how uh, you sort of like write something and then feel critiqued by the thing which you've written. Um, <laughs> but uh, like one of the ways that I, I sort of encounter the, the ongoing need to disinvest from the world is uh, disappointment. So like you've, you think of yourself as disinvested in something uh, and then a bad thing happens and you feel, you feel disappointed. Like your political leaders have let you down. Uh, the society in which you live has betrayed you in some way. And of course, that, some of that is, is natural. But I guess the extent to which uh, I'm occasionally yeah, disappointed by something which happens in the news. And I think like, oh, because you thought for a moment that it was going to be good. Why would you think that? You wrote a whole book on how that's not going to happen. And I find that, that work kind of interesting in an intellectual sense, but like important sort of personally to, to find ways of, of disinvesting from the world and also investing in other forms of, of community and solidarity uh, that will help guard you against those temptations uh, of hoping in the world, um, which again is an endless task. Yeah, well, I think it's harder to disinvest from you know, whatever ethical commitments you may have. So when you see, you know, this or that happen, you know, I think it's only, like you say, it's only natural to have a response. You can still be disinvested, but I think maybe it also points to the impossibility of total disinvestment. And I think that would necessarily, wouldn't necessarily be a good thing. I think you'd probably give up some um, important part of yourself in doing that. It would, that would amount to a form of passivity um, mm. that is, problematic in a different sense right so i uh, i just want to thank you for that yeah well uh, thanks for having <laughs> me uh, i've really enjoyed the conversation no oh, you should yeah. uh, before you go you should probably mention um you know where people can find you if they want to get in touch um you know what or do you want, want them to find you if they want yes, you to uh, find I you, am, uh, what uh, you're working uh, on next and that sort of thing yeah uh so um so right now i'm working on a book project well, I'm working on a few things. So uh, I should have an essay coming out uh, sometime next year on conspiracy theories and populism and political theology. 
where I'm getting more interested in kind of epistemic issues and, and how we sort of see the world and social epistemology. And so somehow found out, fell down this rabbit hole of looking at conspiracy theories and the way that we talk about conspiracy theorists and populists. And then I'm, I'm working on a book project on something like uh, race and religion in a secular Europe, which is focused on the way that um, there's like lots of interesting stuff happening in the study of race in America and some interesting stuff happening in Europe. But a lot of the stuff that's happening in Europe uh, is drawing heavily on what's happening in America. I mean, Europe has its own racial issues. Uh, and I think the, the sort of vividness of the racial conflicts in America often make it easy for people in Europe to, to not confront the racial crises, the racial antagonisms uh, that are, are part of the European experience. Um, yeah, and so I just want to sort of figure that out. I'm still fairly early on in that, that process, but uh, hopefully one day that too will emerge into the world. Um, yeah, and people can find me at Thomas J. Lynch on Twitter. Um, that's probably the, the best place. That's a nice one. It. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah really appreciate you. Um taking the time to talk with us today i really enjoyed the book we'll we'll put a link we'll put a link to it in the in the show notes whatever whenever we get around to releasing this stuff I'll send, I'll send you a note before we do yes i really appreciate the time and attention you, you two have taken to engage with those ideas yeah. awesome yeah all right tommy enjoy the rest of your day man let's yeah, um, and, uh, nice to meet both of you and uh thank you uh for waking up very early to talk to me <laughs> yeah no worry all right we'll stay right. in touch all right, great. Talk to you later. Later, bye. bye. Thanks again to Tommy. His book, Apocalyptic Political Theology, is available, and we've linked to that in the show notes. Thanks also to Nikki Nine, who's provided our theme music. Check him out. There's a link to his Bandcamp in the show notes. Graphic and sound design is by Matt Baker. And let's see what else. Oh, we've started a partnership with a label called Cryo Chamber. They do a lot of dark ambient stuff. And they're great. I'll have more details uh, about that as we go. And uh, I think that'll do it. See you next time. Oh, I almost forgot. The introduction featured a quote from Walter Kaufman. Uh, That was from his book, Theology in the Nuclear Age. I forget when that was written. I think somewhere in the 80s. That would make sense. Um, A little bit of stuff I threw in as well. And, you know, some Jesus, because you can't talk about apocalypticism without Jesus. Peace.